Good evening. The Eno Pratt Free Library is honored to host Dr. Colin Acock of Albuquerque, New Mexico this evening. Dr. Acock has been writing and or teaching writing her entire life. Her degrees in the field include a Bachelor of Science in English Education from Northern Arizona University and an MA in English from California State University at Dominguez Hills, and an MA and PhD in Rhetoric, Linguistics, and Literature from the University of Southern California. She has taught writing in public schools and universities, and she has published in the fields of writing, business, and history. Dr. Acock has won national awards while serving as executive editor for trade publications. She has been invited to write for numerous organizations, including Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol, where she wrote historical biographies. Her interest in sports history comes naturally. Her father was a professional boxer during the Great Depression, and her brother taught on the PGA. Together, Dr. Acock and Mark Scott of Austin, Texas, have been writing fiction and nonfiction for the past 10 years. Their work on the boxer Joe Gans has appeared in regional and historical publications, encyclopedias, and is the only book-length biography of the first African-American world champion. Dr. Acock and Mark Scott are the editors for a new book to be released by McFarland Publishers in December 2010, titled The First Black Boxing Champions, Exes on Fighters of the 1800s to the 1920s. I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Acock this evening to the Inoprat Free Library. Thank you. You know, this Pratt Library holds a very special place in my heart because this is where I did most of the research. This is where it started, one year of research down in the basement. Uh, you know what? I can see everybody just nodding, saying, yes, please. Give, Lord, give me a year that I can be in a basement looking at old files and magazines. You know, I hope that's the life that you love because that's the life that I love. And it's only worth doing the things that you're passionate about. And please give all your used books back to your library. I don't know if there's a, a library book system in the Pratt where they sell books. It's very important to keep your library sound financially. Do whatever you can to volunteer. And please know that this is the greatest library in the entire world. It was the first free public library it gives me chills to be here. When I was asked to come, they asked me what day I would like to come. And the first thing that popped out of my mind was August 10th, 2010, because that is the centennial of the death of Joe Gans. And this day, ladies and gentlemen, is the last day that we can celebrate that very hallmark. And so this is a very, very sacred, sad, and joyous day for me. And I apologize for being an all-black. It's very funereal, but we've just had a uh, re-celebration of his funeral with a horse-drawn... Uh, how many were out there today? Please raise your hands. Uh, at the uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery, if you haven't had the opportunity to go out there, it's in Westport. You're, most of you are probably from Baltimore and know the area. Please go out and look at the largest headstone. It is Joe Gans, and that's where he was buried, and it was the largest funeral. At the time, over 10,000 people came to the church where he was buried. A hundred hacks carried people out with three complete wagon loads of flowers. 10,000 people attended. 
and they were from all walks of life. You have to understand, I want to take you out of today's mindset and put you back in 1910. Please know and put this in your heart. Everyone loved Joe Gans in 1910. There was no controversy. He was without a doubt the greatest, most important, world-renowned figure that Europeans even recognized. When you said, can you tell me anything about Maryland, they could only tell you about Francis Scott Key at the time, and you know all the, you know, William Wallace donations and everything that came over that, that way. Cardinal Gibbon, and everybody smiled. Joe Gans. He was a phenomenal man. He could do anything he wanted to. He had all the money at the end of his life. And sadly enough, he ended up penniless because he spent the money on the Goldfield Hotel, the, all of these things, but mainly to cure his incurable tuberculosis. I also have another confession. This is my first PowerPoint, so this is a very historic evening. You saw what I attempted to pick up, paper. I'm a writer. Joe Gans was the first African-American world champion in any sport Shouldn't our sport history start with that? I can hear a few amens every now and then. He was the first black man ever to win a world title for the lightweight position. And he was the first African-American world lightweight champion. He fought the longest fight in modern gloved boxing. 42 rounds. Three, as we discussed that, the longest fight. And it was the longest fight ever filmed by Edison's new machine that came about when he filmed the first boxer in the Black Maria in 1894. So this is a new media. Joe Gans was also the first, the father of modern scientific boxing. Many people lay claim to that. With, I'm going to talk boxing terms, so just hang on with me. Go through it. Maybe you learn some new names. Gentleman Jim Corbett, everybody remembers John L. Sullivan. John L. Sullivan fought the last bare-knuckle fight with Jake Kilrain, who trained in Baltimore. And everyone was on the side of Jake Kilrain, and, uh, including Nellie Bly. He didn't win that fight, but it was the last bare-knuckle fight in 1889. And Joe Gans came along in 1891. So you see how he bridged the gap very easily from bare-knuckle boxing to modern glove boxing. He was scientific in that Joe Gans was so smart, one of the smartest boxers, and he studied what it took to do what he needed to do. And Joe Gans was so clever that he could virtually call the shot, which there is lore, that he could motion to his friends when the fateful round would be. Now, he made it a habit in general not to knock people out in seven or eight rounds. The reason was because boxing was integrated. Now you say, well, it wasn't really because John L. Sullivan refused to fight a black man. And Jim Corbett in the heavyweight division refused to fight a black man. They did that because they were afraid they would lose. And that man they were going to lose to is Peter Jackson from Australia. That's in, that's in the new book. But the reason they drew the color line, and that was the drawing of the color line. As a result, they had to make categories for 
the colored black boxers. And that's where you see the inception of the colored black boxers. So there was a colored heavyweight champion. Of course, we know that was Jack Johnson because Jack Johnson was not allowed to fight until 1908. Joe Gans loses his crown in 1908. Joe, uh, Jack Johnson wins his crown. So you see this seamless line through history. Joe Gans starred in the longest fight ever filmed. People do not understand, many don't recognize, and some refuse to believe that the boxers were the first movie stars. And they absolutely were, because they were already stage stars. These world championship titles carried such celebrity with them that they could go on theatrical tours. And when you read about the exploits of Gentleman Jim and John L. Sullivan and those kinds of people, they made their money in theatrical productions. Plays were written for them. They would go on stage. Now, Joe Gans, to my knowledge, please, we are still discovering. I'm still researching. I will go to my grave still researching Joe Gans. If you have anything, add it to me. The publisher's coming out with a second edition. It's, it's going to be a Bible in, in, ten, in eight years. Um, but nevertheless, Joe Gans was forced on his theatrical tours to take on all comers. And what that means is that any one of you can now, if I'm Joe Gans, can now challenge me. And I will throw out money, $25 to $250, in order to uh, take you on. But what that means to me is that Joe Gans fought many, many more fights. Granted, they weren't long battles. They could have been three rounds. They could have been five rounds. They could have been six rounds. But nevertheless, he fought many more battles than what we know about on record. Because during the week, he was taking on all comers. And he fought an average of 15 to 20 fights a year. Modern fighters will not fight that. And toward the, in, in the, the, the higher you got toward the contender, toward the title, the more rounds you fought. So toward the end of his life, the three years and four years, I'm sorry, before the end of his career, he was fighting on average 20 to 25 rounds. Those were typical for professional fights. It's still modern boxing. So you take any one of these modern, when I get around to all the modern boxers, I love it, or the champions of the past, I just ask them, you know, how would you fare in a 20-round fight? How would you train for that? What, how would you be in the 19th round? How would you feel? Um, so Gans was a celebrity. When he established, his, when he won his title, he was a celebrity, just like anyone else, and you earned $1,000 a week. Now, can you see how those crowns are so important and why many of the white champions refused to take on contenders? Because to lose that crown was to lose your money on the stage. And all of the fighters, Gans included, typically got $1,000 a week. And so Gans, the differentiation, I just want to keep telling you how different Gans was and what makes him so phenomenal is that he took on all challengers for the title. Now, there's a big dispute. Did he take on seven title defenses or did he take on 17? I don't care. You give me any number in between, and that's still remarkable when Frank Earn, who, who only took on two challenges. The other thing that gives Gans his significance that, that we tried to bring in this book is the fact that it's not just all about boxing. It's a social contribution you make. And Gans opened the Goldfield Hotel with the money that he earned from the Goldfield battle. He put in $7,000 to an existing $3,000 building, and he opened the first black and tan club. What that meant at the time was it was first mixed-race music club. It was right here in Baltimore, 
has not been saved. But whenever any of the boxers, listen to me, any boxer, any celebrity, any musical troupe came, the port of call was the Goldfield Hotel. It was the Waldorf Astoria of its time. And the, the, one of the most famous men who went through there was Jack Johnson. And um, he loved it so much that he went and modeled his Club Deluxe in Chicago and the Cotton Club in uh, Harlem. So Joe Gans gave us a great deal of uh, cultural contributions. He also gave Eubie Blake his first big professional break, and that's where Eubie Blake wrote a rag called The Goldfield and many, many other rags. And Eubie lived a long life also here in Baltimore, and we have to celebrate the fact that Joe Gans never forgot his friends. He never forgot his friends, and Eubie Blake was a childhood friend. So why has Joe Gans been forgotten? That's the first mystery that I had to solve, and the one I asked whenever I came to Baltimore seven years ago, five years ago, and I always asked, do you, have you ever heard, tell me who was the first African-American world boxing champion? And I could never get an answer. When I go on the road everywhere, only in Goldfield, Nevada, does everybody consistently tell me with 100% accuracy the name Joe Gans. Outside of Goldfield, Nevada, which was a population of 5,000 when you saw that film, and now it's down to 300 as a ghost town, but it's easy for 300 people to know that their most famous battle in history was the longest fight of history. The sheer fact, and this was searching a needle in a haystack, when I discovered that the fact that San Francisco did not want Joe Gans to win, in 1904 there's a, just the fact that media did not want by 1900, still, it was t difficult from 1902 to 1904, there was still some controversy about Gans holding the title, not controversy about him holding the title, without a doubt everyone recognized it, but the fact that the establishment would prefer someone else. On May 13, I'm gonna skip around here in his life to explain why I think he's been forgotten. On May 13th, 1910, remember he died today, August 10th, 1910. On May 13th, news went out from Baltimore that Gans was going west, and he would spend his last remaining days in the west where the air was dry so that he could recuperate from tuberculosis because that was the only thing you could do to go to high, dry places. And on May 20th, the news, when I say the news, they're Hearst papers primarily because he owns everything and still does. And Pulitzer had the other major newspapers. So we have Hearst and Pulitzer that covers the world of all the readers, basically, of massive numbers. And then the newspapers began reporting where Jack Johnson's training camp was and Jim Jeffrey's training camp for the Great White Hope Battle of the 4th of July, 1910. So, Gans is going west. He hopes to be in the ring as Jack Johnson's second for the Great White Hope fight. Sadly enough, when he realized he was too sick and was not going to make it, I think that's when his spirit fell, and it went downhill from there. He did not make the 4th of July fight in Reno. He was very close because he was only in Prescott, Arizona, recuperating. And he couldn't make it, and he got on the train to go back to Baltimore. And from then on, it was all the newspapers were about Jack Johnson. The other thing that I'm sorry to say is why has Gans been forgotten is because there's no visible reminder in Baltimore 
of your native son. And I find that an irony because this is called, and it has been called since John, John Quincy Adams, a monumental city, the monument to the heroes of the ages. And to me, and I hope to you, it may take, I hope it doesn't take another century for us to get a monument to Joe Gans. The basic reason that he's been forgotten is, and you know, why no one's written a biography is because it's just darn complicated. His story was complicated. It was full. And I didn't know this when I started. I thought it was, I just, I was, uh, I, my father told me about this man. He told me all about the early black boxers. I said, well, why if this great, if this man is so great, why has he been forgotten? And why can't I read anything about him? And it's because his story was so darn complicated. And I, I apologize for getting into the complications. You can see I'm, Okay. One of the, 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 it's a mystery. It, it's still a mystery. One of the reasons is where was he born? You know, have I pinned it down? You know, Nat Fleischer said he was first born in Pennsylvania. He changed that when the Maryland Hall of Fame wanted to get Gans in the Hall of Fame in Maryland, and he couldn't be born in Pennsylvania. So Nat Fleischer, the boxing historian of all time, you know, started the Ring magazine, wrote all the boxing books, said, yeah, okay, now he's born in Maryland. Um, did he win fairly, or was he a faker? I love that word. A faker. And that's how you see it printed in, in everything. And so that's still a controversy. Some people don't believe that the Chicago fight with Terry McGovern was even faked. They say that's a true fight. Gans, you know, lost that fight. Uh, boxing historians are, you know, we, we'll get in big fights over that. And was he the continuous lineal champion from 1902 to 1908? And that's always perplexed me. You know, why is his record so continuously misrepresented? And if he was the world's champion, why is he absent from the ring in 1905? And those of you, I don't know how many of you bought the book yet, but what I like to do is, you know, that's the mystery for the historian. You run through and you see 20 fights a year, and suddenly he's the champion in 1902, and he's the champion to 1908, but you see nothing on his record virtually in 1905. So a historian has to answer that question. So that's the big mystery there. Isn't it fun to be a, a historian? So I'm telling you all the controversies. So if you know any of these answers, just uh, tell me after the <laughs> program. Was his father Joseph Safis Butts? I still have a Russian philosopher, uh, historian, calling, uh, emailing me saying, please, on the jogans.com website, which I try to keep up, and you can, I'll promise to be more technical next year. Um, he still says, please get that name off the record. You know, I'm not going to take that name off the record because I have to go with Eubie Blake when Eubie Blake said he grew up with him and he saw his father play baseball and he was a professional baseball player and his name was Joseph Safis Butts. I've got to go with that because I feel like that is more accurate than some Russian historian saying I never found his name in the newspapers. It's not all in the newspapers. The element of oral tradition, which, I came, which he came to me through oral tradition. I've got to believe what my father said. I've got to believe what these people tell me. And so there's an element of truth, and a historian has to weed out those currents and kernels of truth. Was his mother Maria Jackson Gant? Nat Fleischer says he was an orphan at the age of four. That's the story that I've gone with. I'm about to change my tune, but I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I do know that Maria Jackson Gant appears on his death certificate. It's likely his name was Gant. He says it was Gant. Originally, if you look at these early, early things, you can find his name is Gans, G-N-Z, G-N-T-Z. And finally, it becomes J-N and S, and all of the people from there on uh, take that name, Gans. Uh, did he have brothers and sisters? A few mysteries there. 
Ken's early life. We know he went to elementary school in the Green Willow section of Baltimore. He attended 122. How many people attended 122 in this room? Anyone? One person. Um, we know that. We, we are pretty secure that with that information. We think that he fought in street fights around Perkins Square. We're pretty sure with that information. H.L. Minken, uh, a few years after he was dead, volunteered $100 to put a statue of Gans in Perkins Square. I just talked to Janet Allen. Thank you. I just met her. She came up to me and she said, Can you buy, I'd like a book, but I need to write a check. And I said, okay, that's fine. And I said, who do I make this out to? She said, Janet Allen. I said, oh, my goodness, you're the homeowner, the president of the Homeowner Society for Perkins Square. She said, no, that's Heritage Square. I said, that's why I couldn't find you for two years. That gazebo, the original, it's been original since it's been there. That statue was designated to go in Perkins Square. Where is it? Let's get it put in there. We know for a fact that he worked for Caleb Bond in a fish market. What fish market was it? Nat Fleischer Squares, it was a Broadway market. Most historians say Broadway market. Was it Marsh Market? Was it Fort Central Market? So we don't exactly know where he was an oyster shucker, but we do know that he was a fishmongrel in his early days after his uh, basic elementary school education. What do we know about his early boxing career? We know quite a bit is told by manager Al Herford. He began as a featherweight in 1891. Most people did. When you begin at 16, you weigh about 125 pounds, 113, 114. The average man weighed 125 pounds, so you can see the competition was stiff in those days. The competition was not in the heavyweight division. There were fewer men in the heavyweight division than there were in the lightweight division. And there were only two major divisions at that time popular, lightweight and heavyweight. And, of course, there were others, uh, but uh, um, those were the ones that had the big draw. We know that Mr. Herford witnessed Gans Prowess in a boxing carnival where he was forced to fight several people. Nat Flasher says that was a battle royale. I took it for a symbol in the, this book because of the Invisible Man. I thought it was a perfect symbol. It was the antithesis of the good fight. The battle royale had never really been uh, written out in chapter form, so I felt like that was uh, most of uh, important for this book, and it certainly serves as a metaphor for this book. We do know that when Herford saw him, he had to fight three men in a row, and her and Gans quit on the third man. You don't quit if you're a boxer, but if you're forced to fight three people, and they're heavier than you, and one of them was a heavyweight. And he is a featherweight. Now, mind you, featherweight and lightweight were, in this category, one and the same. It's difficult to figure out if there was a separate category that, because they were used interchangeably in many fights. We know that he fought over 60 fights before he was ever noticed by the national press. That's more fights than Muhammad Ali or Joe Frazier had, and he hasn't even been recognized yet. His rise to the top was a roller coaster ride. In 1896, he was scheduled to meet Frank Earn. Frank Earn was a Buffalo boy. Uh, he was an incredible fighter. Some historians say, well, Colleen, he really wasn't that good. Well, I don't want to go into that. I'm going to tell you. He won the world title. I think he was pretty good. Um, he, w went, uh, uh, he won all of his battles from 1891 to 1897. He had a clearer record than Joe Gans. In 1896, we know Joe Gans was married. He had two small children, and his wife died. When Herford got him the first battle in New York, it would have been his first fight in New York with Frank Earn as a contender. Kid Levine owns the title in 1896. 
Joe Gans would have been a contender, as well as Frank Earn, as well as many capable peoples. Nat Fleischer says, without a doubt, Joe Gans faced the hardest competition that any fighter faced in history, rising to the top. And trust me, that's the truth. In uh, 1896, uh, well, I'm sorry, Frank Earn avoided him. So he goes up to New York. His wife died three days before this match. And Al Herford said, I, I don't think he can make the weight limit on the contract that they had signed. Al Herford had a $1,000 forfeit fee. You know what? That was a blessing. That was a blessing, in, you know, in disguise because it put that money out there. And when you laid forfeit money, you laid it with the uh, newspaper men because they were the honest men, and that's where you placed it. So his money was always placed now with uh, Frank Earn because Frank Earn will come back into the picture much later. Uh, I believe Frank Earn avoided him because he knew he could not. He was, hasn't been beaten I think he was afraid of Joe Gans, and I think he didn't want that loss on his record while he was so close to the uh, world title. In 1896, after that, what we know is that Joe Gans lost. His first major loss really was to Bobby Dobbs. Bobby Dobbs was a fighter beyond belief. He may be a name that you're not familiar with. I hope after that book comes out, um, uh, Kevin Smith wrote the chapter on Bobby Dobbs. I had asked all the experts around the world to write what I thought, who I thought they were the best in this next book. Bobby Dobbs ended up starting a gym in Baltimore. Baltimore is the mecca of boxing. Some people think it was Philadelphia. Some people think it was Boston. Some people think it was New York. New York was a mecca. Baltimore became a mecca through the, through the uh, work of Al Herford. I mean, there was a stable of strong fighters out of here, and Al Herford was willing to get everybody, including Bob Fitzsimmons. Um, Jake Kilrain, all of the major people came to Baltimore. Bobby Dobbs came here, started a gym. He's known as the father, a black boxer. He's known as the father of boxing in France and Germany. He was just one of Gans' competitors. Uh, Gans also loses to Elbows McFadden. Let me tell you, he didn't get that name Elbows for nothing. And uh, those of you that know, fighting with elbows in the ring is a little bit illegal but he wrote a book saying it wasn't at that time. And the reason was because his hand went out with, on a battle in his right, uh, right hand, and he decided that he better defend himself with his, and fight with his elbow. And so that's how he got that name, and believe me, he could knock you out with his elbow. And it was a, always a dirty fight. These were always dirty fights because it's the transition from bare knuckles, which was anything, grab the hair, throw him down. You know, it's like, isn't there something called like MFA or MCA or whatever it is today? And uh, that's what that's all about. So, um, I don't know why this, because my husband doesn't know the uh, chronology here, but Jack Blackburn was always, also a contender. Jack Blackburn always wanted to fight Gans. He didn't fight Gans until after he had won the crown in 1902. He fought him three times. Joe Gans gave him three fights. That's what he looked like. Can you see the two scars across his face? Those were from knife fights. One was from his brother. So, Jack Blackburn... Uh, he also killed a man, and that was not in the ring. And uh, so, you know, he was a warrior. He was a warrior, Jack Blackburn. Jack Blackburn, uh, unfortunately, well, I, for him, fortunately, because I like Joe Gans, but he didn't beat uh, Joe Gans. But Joe Gans gave him an opportunity to fight him. Joe Gans was always giving men opportunity who wanted to fight him. He even gave some Florida professor, it's the funniest thing in the book, uh, when he knew, the, you know, so... Joe Gans played like he was Pocahontas, and they, he let this guy come into the ring. But, you know, he's always giving people a chance. As you know, Jack Blackburn ended up being Chappie, the great trainer of Joe Lewis. And what he taught 
Uh, Joe Lewis, he learned from Joe Gans. So when you talk to these old trainers, I love the 80-year-old trainers because they're the ones that knew Jack Blackburn of the professional trainers. And so you know what I know, they're carrying the legacy of the instruction from Joe Gans directly. And we talk about those things that Joe Gans invented in that legacy. But unfortunately, Joe Lewis, as great as he was, couldn't get the footwork down that Joe Gans had. And Chappie was always miffed about that. Joe Gans had the fall from grace in the year 1900, and this is what you really read on the records. When he is maligned in history, when he is maligned, he is maligned for this year. 1900, Gans quit in the 12th round of the Urn fight when he was finally up for the championship. He was able to fight, uh, Urn won the championship against Levine, who's now an old man in 1899. And he allows Gans a championship uh, match in uh, 1900, and in the 12th round, I believe it was a result of a headbutt, but history sometimes records it as a fist. Gans uh, had the largest gash over his eye, and blood gushed out, and he couldn't see anything, and blindness was a real fear in all the fighters. I've got some pictures of one-eyed Connolly, who was a great fighter, but, and as you know, Sam Langford, and the tragic story. So blindness was a real fear. He, uh, went, he said, I can't see, I can't see, and the referee came over, and the, his seconds jumped out, and uh, there was nothing the seconds could do to stop the blood, and the gash was so ghastly, but the referee ordered him to fight. Gan said, I quit. The referee ordered him to fight again. He said, I can't. I can't see. Uh, what I found in the records is that his eyeball had fallen out, and the physician jumped in the ring and had to replace the eyeball. Gan still wears that scar in the earlier picture that you see. It was so ghastly. As a result of that fight, he was accused of the yellow streak. He never got over that. People were always accusing him of that. And then comes the ghastly McGovern fight, and that was a faked fight that was set up between uh, Herford, the manager of Gans, and Sam Harris, the manager of McGovern. McGovern was a featherweight champion. He and Gans, some, some people think, okay, well, you have a featherweight fighting a lightweight. But remember, these are contractual uh, thing, uh, arrangements, and so the weight comes into the contract. So they were actually uh, not that far apart in weight. Um, uh, Gans was forced to take a dive. He ends up in the... Um, uh, every, every black fighter was afraid of going to jail. That was a big thing, because who's going to get you out? I don't want to come out in some of those circumstances. But he goes in front of the judge, and the judge uh, releases him from that. But it's an interesting chapter. Gans was crowned the world champion in 1902. He wins the title in a 60-second KO of Frank Gern. The uh, fight is moved from Buffalo to Fort Erie, Canada, because it's too racially sensitive. Remember, this is 1902. We don't know Gans yet, and we didn't want that fight. We Americans didn't want that fight in America, so they went to Canada. And uh, I'm pretty sure Herford told him, don't ever let that happen again. Nobody goes all this way for a 60-second fight. Gans knew his, please, his motto was, wait for the opportunity and avail yourself of it when it comes. Gans takes on all the challengers to his title, and suddenly he loses the title in 1904, and that's a big mystery. How did that happen? So I researched the Jimmy Britt loss to Gans. He lost on a foul in San Francisco. Jimmy Britt was San Francisco boy. There is a... Um, a club. It was more like the mob of three uh, owners of uh, area clubs, and they wanted Jimmy Britt to win. I believe Hearst told his sports writer, William Naughton, that um, he didn't want a black fighter because William Naughton always liked Joe Gans. William Naughton was the greatest sports writer at the time. They also made about $1,000 a week. And 
uh, not I always have newspaper writers in the audience, and they go, well, no, they make, you know. So, by today's standards. And uh, so, two weeks after the fight, after Gans had won that fight, the newspaper comes out only in San Francisco that says, you know, Joe Gans really didn't win that fight. Jimmy Britt did. No other newspaper in the United States said that. So that was the piece, two weeks after the fact, that I happened to find in the San Francisco papers, and then that unraveled that mystery. Britt in fact, claimed the white lightweight title. And then he refuses to fight Gans because he's fighting for the white light. If the coloreds can have a colored title, then the whites can have a white title. So now I own the white title, and that title is better than the world title because it's a white title. It was all this title talk and colors of titles. But he never claimed to have, believe it or not, he personally never claimed to have the world title. He did claim the white title, but he did refuse to fight Gans. Now, that's debatable, but trust me, that's fact. <laughs> Britt and Battling Nelson then battle it out for the title standings among the world titles. So you see where it's coming down to this grand show-off you know, this, this, this is standoff, and then we're going to get here. Then suddenly, that's my mysterious year, 1905. So Gans has lost the title in 1904. In 1905, he's virtually fightless, with the exception of Sullivan. And Sullivan owns the welterweight title. He fights him in a period of a year three times. Why isn't he fighting anybody else? Most historians today say, well, he gave up the title to go fight in the welterweight division. If you're only fighting one man, I'm not sure that's the welterweight division because he was fighting welterweights and heavies all along. So that doesn't mean you give up the title. And then I found Nat Fleischer saying in a very obscure reference that's coming out in another article that says, well, he voluntarily gave that up. Can you tell me who voluntarily gives up a title and then comes back? And then has, you know, and then he has the title. Nobody came into that 1906 fight saying Gans was not the world champion. So it makes no sense what Nat Fleischer said. In 1906, San Francisco earthquake happened in, uh, i got to wrap this up. Goldfield, Nevada, that was Tex Rickard's house. It was the first brick building in Goldfield, Nevada. Goldfield, Nevada, a town of 5,000, is the largest town in Nevada. And they're responsible for the silver and gold going into San Francisco. When the earthquake came, believe me, that's what caused the Goldfield fight. And, and really, people have failed to discover that, but that's the reason. Uh, Tex Rickard said, we need to bring in money. We need to bring it in fast because of the boom and bust economy in uh, uh, Goldfield. Go, uh, Tex Rickard advertises for a $10,000 fight. Battling Nelson takes it up. He's in Utah. He sees the ad in the paper, which is how they did that. He takes it up. Tex Rickard says, okay. He calls back Naughton. He says, I want to know who the greatest fighter is that can take up this guy. And Naughton says, it's going to be uh, Joe Gans. But nobody knows where Joe Gans is. Some people said, well, I thought he was dead. Tex Rickard puts up $30,000 in, in uh, $20 gold pieces in that exact bank. And uh, he said, you know what? I know what it's like when people discover gold. They're going to see that gold, and everybody's going to come to the fight. And, and uh, sure enough, it created the last gold rush to the American frontier. And that's what it's known for, Goldfield. It was really the fight that did that. And Larry Sullivan, they call him Shanghai Larry, he volunteered. Now, Gans, his manager left him. Herford left him in 1905. He's penniless. He's on the streets. He's homeless in San Francisco. Naughton finds him, says, I think they want you for a fight. And when uh, Battling Nelson heard that it was with Joe Gans, he said, I'm not fighting for anything less than 30000 I want the winner's share up front. Not only that, um, there you go. That's just what I said. 
he said, I'm going to have some provisions in here because I'm going I'm to waste him down so that I can guarantee a win here because he needs that win. This is a huge fight. This is a civil war. This is black and white. You know, this is like somebody set up a ring in Juarez and took those two factions and battled it out. That's, <laughs> that's about what Goldfield was. These are all the big players. This is Billy Nolan on the right in the coat. That's Gans down to nothing, 133. You see how shriveled. And uh, he's been dehydrating himself for two weeks. And he's, had, uh, he's been running 20 miles a day. I asked the modern boxers, how much do you run a day before a fight? And they say four to five. Uh, you'll see that that's Shanghai Larry with the big top hat doing the cigar, and he sold over a, a million dollars worth of fake mining stock over this. That's Tex Rickard in the first right hat to his left, and George uh, Seiler, who's going to be the referee. This is what it looked like in one of the rounds, Gans Knox battling Nelson out, battling Nelson and helping him back up through the rings. What you don't see, but you'll see in the film, is that battling Nelson is kicking his shins to debilitate him. This ends up being the best picture, Jan's favorite picture, and he has it up in the Goldfield Hotel. New Year's Day comes. Jan, now, that was in a 100-degree temperature. He fights Kid Herman, which ends up being the, one, the film that he made the most money off of and the one I remember seeing as a child. And that's New Year's Day in Tonopah, Nevada. The snows came. It's below zero, and Gens has to disrobe. They built the largest indoor th amphitheater um, at a tune of 10,000 at that time. This is in Nowheresville. It's 30 miles north of uh, Goldfield, but they thought that that would bring in uh, the crowd like the uh, Goldfield did. But it didn't because of the snow, obviously. That is the amphitheater. Look at that. That's in 1907, January. Those are all windows that open out to allow airflow. But it, there's no heat in there as well. So you can know that Gans is already suffering from tuberculosis, being dehydrated from Goldfield. Now he's got to go into the cold. That is when he hits him. And that was supposed to be the cleanest knockout in world history to that date. Uh, that was in eight rounds. It was eight rounds, perfect for the movies, 35 minutes. I'm sure Gans knew that. He let it go, 35 minutes. And it was played everywhere, and he made... $15,000 on that film. Gans takes the money, establishes the Goldfield Hotel, loses to Battling Nelson in 1908, tries it again in 1908. One was July 4th, one was Labor Day, because they only fought on holidays. That's the only time men got off. And it was always a prize fight. It was the biggest fight. Fighting was the biggest thing in history. He says, farewell, as I told you. He arrives in Phoenix, Arizona in June. Please tell me what Phoenix, Arizona is like in June. And I don't think that's a place that you want your lungs to air out. It was 120 degrees. He stayed there a month. Uh, he, he finally goes up to Prescott, Arizona, and that's in the high mountains. And if he'd gotten there earlier, maybe he would have survived, but that wasn't to be the case. He was to be put on the train August 3rd to go back to Baltimore. He wanted to die in the, in the arms of his mother. And uh, the doctors wouldn't allow, the train people wouldn't allow him on because you can't have a dead body on a train going that far. And so he hired uh, Southworth. Southworth ends up being the grandfather of my best friend because I graduated from Prescott High School. I was taken there for my lungs to heal. And Gans and I recuperated one block from each other. So, you know, this project has, tell me, I don't know, but it's been my life making all along. And maybe I, and I certainly didn't know it at the time. There is Gans weighing about 85 pounds. He's taken into Chicago, and they said, I'm sorry, Mr. Gans, but you can't live. He's been on oxygen, by the way, and he refuses now other nasal nostrum treatments. The things are ghastly. You can read about them in the book. They're too nauseating for me to tell you about what those treatments he suffered from. He probably died early from the treatments. 
Um, I collect bottles. Well, I don't collect. I have three bottles. That's an, I guess that's a collection, isn't it? And they're bottles that I know of medicine he would have taken at the time. They all had cocaine. They all had uh, uh, bits of heroin. And uh, um, that's what they were given because no one knew. It certainly made you feel better. And most women were already addicted to heroin after, heroin after childbirth. And so they continued to give it to their children for colic. And they had no idea. So we're pretty sure that the early boxers when they got cuts or when they were hurting and in t internal in uh, injuries were given these kind of medications. Gans said, you know what, I've never, I've never really lost a fight. I'm not going to lose this one. I'm going to keep fighting. Put me back on that train. There's no doctor in that day that would put any other man like that on a train. But that's the kind of um, charisma he carried and power and um, out of respect, everywhere his train went, crowds came out to wave at him, cry. They knew he was going home. It was in all the papers uh, everywhere. The newspapers all around the nation carried his word. Uh, as soon as he got to Baltimore, he, he, was, he lived five days, was able to manage his affairs, get everything in order. And uh, he, the, the Hearst newspapers and the Pulitzer were there at, at Argyle Street on, on the doorstep asking the doctor nightly, okay, what's his condition? You know, and they shot these through the wires. What's his condition? Is he, is he going to die today? Is he going to die tomorrow? Blah, blah, blah. And that's what he did. He passes away on August 10, 1910. His funeral is on August 13, 1910. These are the members of Ring 101. Lisa Crawley. Give me a wave. Is that you? I don't have my glasses. This was at the Reginald Lewis Museum. And... You know, the, these guys asked me, you know, who do you want to see when you come to Baltimore? I wanted that book to come out in Baltimore. This is the last book signing I'm going to do on this book, and you guys are at it. Thank you. Please ask me your question, sir. Really, it's a comment. Give me your comment. No, no. Uh, no it's very good. I'm glad you raised it because I've been collecting information for 40 years. And uh, I asked some give you some names if you can mention them back to me Bill Pennington you know who he was not offhand no that was Maria's brother his, oh. tombs, his tombstone was in front of that when I went down to Sharp Street it was yes, the yes, disarray yes, yes. Pennington. my grandson moved it back and I called up Sharp Street said it's, it's a mess down there Here's Pennington yeah. Pennington Pennington thank you yes. here's another name Alfred Jack Thompson I did a master thesis. He was a musician in Baltimore. He fought Joe Gaines in 1902 up in Chicago in an exhibition fight. Okay? Mary Reed. That was his first wife. Mary Reed, R-E-E-D. R-E-E-D. There was considered four wives. There's only really one official certificate. And that, well, we know that, Madge Watkins. He murdered when, she was, when he was 19. When he was 19, yeah. thank you. Okay, we knew there another, was a Mary, but they thought that was like Mary Bulow. Well, William Elliott, my grandfather's uncle, was the mortician for the funeral. Oh, in the funeral uh, papers. Okay. Thank you. How about Leperville, Pennsylvania? I'm sorry again? Leperville, Pennsylvania. Leperville is the, May, the big gym. That's the That's big where gym. He That's trained where he trained. With Al Herford. Right. And Al Herford, incidentally, was a con man. Yes, he was a he gambler. He used to get raided on the east side. Yes. And he used to carry diamonds. When he couldn't pay Bill. Yeah, he was a con man. Yeah, he, yes. how, about, how about a thoroughbred by the name of Kentucky? Kentucky thoroughbred. Kentucky Rosebud? Yeah. Now, so you, you familiar with Catonsville? Yes. That's where his training camp was. Yes. Okay. How about uh, what he sang before he died? 
Jesus loves me. That's right, you got it. <laughs> what, is this a test or something? How about I'm going to give it to you. I want to talk to you afterwards. How about the Baltimore bullet? I, I can't hear you. The Baltimore bullet. Bullet. The Baltimore bullet? Yeah. He was a white fighter. He uh, asked him about Al Herford. Jack Tipton? Jack Tipman? No, his name. Joe yeah, Tipman? Yeah, they called him the Baltimore bullet. Now. Yeah. I mean, no Man, this is the no toughest fans. audience I've ever faced in my life. How about, okay, I'm going to give you one. How about Barney Ross? Barney Ross? Everybody knows Barney Ross. Well, what did he do, though? Barney Ross. He came to the yeah. tomb like Mike Tyson. Oh, did, yeah. like Mike Tyson, yes. yes. Oh, the visitor. last one. Oh, well, you know about that. How about the, um... Well, give me one I know, please. Okay. Maria Hemsley. Maria Hampton. Hemsley. Hemsley. Maria Hemsley. Oh, my gosh. I know Maria Hemsley. Okay, I'll just tell you who she is, and, I'm, and then I'll leave. Go ahead. Okay. No, no, no. You don't have to leave. No, no, because I think she wants to She had a funeral home, and she sang at the funeral. Yes. That, oh, That's my okay. gosh. Yes. First of all, I mean, I, I love what you did on Joe Gaines. It was great. Um, oh, so more, more of a comment than anything else. Um, I was wondering, has there, has there been any work done on, has he, any political activities he was involved in? Was he involved in any uh, anti-lynchy movements? Was he involved in any, anything like that? Has, is, is there anything out there like that that I can go and look at? Um, the ep he wrote some commentary. No, no. The Part of the problem is there's no autobiography. There's no commentary. Um, I've just discovered that he may have had a speech impediment. Now, I'm not convinced that that's the case. That would have explained why he was hesitant in front of audiences. But he never, uh, while he was never vocal about current political affairs, he did not fear to say anything when that came about. I did find uh, uh, some commentary on the... Uh, Soldiers in uh, um, the border uh, in Texas. Do you remember the soldiers in, in um, Brownsville, 1907? Yeah, right. And he did comment on that. No, he fought on the street fights. And when I say street fights, I don't mean like gang fights. I mean organized street fights in Perkins Square where they would come and they would have these established fights and, you know, they would go wash up in the bathhouse and these would be scheduled and he fought people from Washington, D.C. And he was considered the best of the Green Willow area and nobody would come into the Green Willow area without fear of their lives. This was the toughest area. He grew up the toughest kid and he was the toughest fighter and everybody knew it and he didn't ever lose a fight there. Yes, he was. And he was fighting a little bit older. But not, you know, more than one in, you know, no, nobody fought really that, those older fighters. I'm not aware that he fought any, any like, 28-year-old. Now, I do know he trained with Caleb Bond and his brother, Caleb Bond's brother, and they were the ones that taught him. I think this may have been Nat Fleischer's mistake when he talks about battle royales because they fought him two-on-one, and that's where he learned his reflexes. But he, uh, headgear, uh, modern, the old fighters didn't wear headgear because they were taught to slip punches. Now, you don't fight 200 fights and not have your nose broken and all those scars and all that because Gans knew the accuracy of every angle, every everything. And we can talk uh, about angles of punches and all that, but let me tell you, Gans knew it, he invented it, he started it, he knew about it, he studied Fitzsimmons, he studied all the great guys, and he could not, if you can't hit a man, that's the goal of the manly art. Don't let uh, Ms. Aikon, I'd like to congratulate you on all your work and, and all your research Aww, and what you've done. Thank you. uh, first, I have a comment. I believe that what you have opened up for the city of Baltimore will finally, this is a personal belief of mine, 
that it will finally lead to the man's African name. And once we find out what his African oh. name is, we're going to oh. learn a little bit more because um, this is where I personally believe your research is heading. I believe also that that should be added to the, one of the reasons why he's been forgotten because we have come to a place in this country where there are records of enslaved people's African names. And when we find that situation out, I believe the man was royalty, and I believe he was protected by the Most High to go through what he's gone through. Thank you so much, Clayton LaBeouf, actor. And you know what? This is just the start. There's so much more, and thank you for taking up the cause. I know you're important. My question to you is, has any major newspaper in this city sat down with you as, as personable as you are? No. Has sat down and done no. a featured article? Thank you. I'll get you next. The Sun article, the man called me, and I said, why are you calling me? He says, well, my article, he says, my article's already finished. I have 2,000 words. What do you have to say? Again, no, That was a quote. You can, I mean, that was a quote. He, he called me, and he said, my articles are done. To, I said, why did you call me? He says, Kevin Grace told me to call you. I again piggyback off of uh, what you have done, and I really appreciate it. Uh, my question is getting back to the tombstone. I started going out to Auburn to uh, look at Joe uh, 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 Gann's tombstone back in the 80s when I saw a picture, when I read some of his autobiography in a book and saw the picture of the headstone out in Auburn. Now, the last picture that you showed that is not the original My husband headstone. put in that. I do apologize. I, oh, my gosh. I have. That is not the original headstone. No. But my question is, when I went to Auburn, on his headstones, it just says Gans. Yes, that's now, true. That was with all the popularity that he had, uh, is there any reason why it yes, wasn't there is. Uh, yes. anything more yes. written? He always went by Gans. Everybody knew him by Gans. They didn't call him Joseph Gans, Joe Gans, blah, blah, he was Gans. And that's how he was known during his lifetime. Okay, so he hoped that that would stand. I'm Gans. pretty certain he... But I mean, oh, yes, as yes. time passed, people yes. forgot. And, yes. You know. I don't think anybody thought they would forget. He was the most popular world figure. I don't think anybody had any idea that he would be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And he did make his funeral plans, so I, I'm certain that that was all pre... Uh, I'm certain he was aware of all that. Okay, but and I also he, noticed the other tombstones that were close to him also just had last names. Johnson. Well, that was pretty common in those days because you can't afford all the carving, quite honestly. Okay. Right. There's some very nice tombstones there. One last question, and I'd like to introduce... Oh, sorry. Quick question. You know, I, I was told that, you know, we had to wrap it up. Are we okay? Yeah, you're fine. I'm, I'm going with the man just, here. <laughs> Thank you. I just, I just had two quick questions. While you were doing this research, did you ever come across the name of Daniel Mendoza in England? Yes, of course. He was a English boxer. Yeah. Mendoza. I mean, I, I mean, the only things I've read about him Bare are... Bare Knuckle Fight. Uh, you'll read about him in the new book. Uh, we have, uh, 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 just briefly, yeah. because, uh, you know, that probably, uh, that's really where you have our first African-American champion, but he's not acknowledged as yeah. well when he goes over there and fights Joe Crib, or Crib. Yeah. But Mendoza fought Crib. All right. One other question. I've read in other, uh, other books about boxing that back 
at the turn of the, the last century, a lot of the decisions were what they called newspaper decisions. Yes, they were newspaper decisions. All of them in Pennsylvania at that time were newspaper decisions. We're trying to find out if Maryland has new, newspaper decisions. The IBRA, I'm a member of the International Boxing Research Organization. It's very difficult to do research because there's no standardization of who won what. Referees yeah. made all the decisions with the exception of newspaper decisions, and uh, you just have to go with the newspaper decision. Now, the problem is when I'm looking at Gans fights and I have a newspaper decision and then I have, you know, referee and I have this, set and the other. So it's difficult to say, you know, okay, I call it a win, I call it a KO, I call it this, set and the other. That's part of the uh, problem because I call 100 KOs. A- 100 KOs. Did you guys hear that? Eight losses. Two of them when we was dying. Three of them, you know, probably legit, and the other two were thrown fights. You know, the guy was a incredible. Yeah, yeah. One more quick question. In your research, uh, years ago when I worked at the Frederick Douglass home in Washington, I, I came across a book uh, written by the great author Ash on black athletes. Yes, okay. excellent Did you book. use, his, use his, uh, uh, his book as a source to find Joe Gans? It's not as detailed as I would have liked, okay. and I would have loved to have interviewed him, but you know what I give him credit for is being a, the first modern writer to come back and really bring national attention to Joe Gans. Oh, okay. Okay, so he's in that book. Yes, he is. It's a hard-to-find book. Yes, he is. But I will tell you, I'll give you away all my book secrets. If you ever get over to, get over to Frederick, there is this huge bookstore, and they have ten copies of Arthur Ashe's book there. And now you're going to ask me the name of it, but it's just this big, huge bookstore, and they have the best... They have a whole box. They have the largest boxing section I've ever seen in the country. And believe me, I, that's, I go to every used bookstore and every real bookstore. It's a combination of used... Does anybody know the name in Frederick, Maryland, of that huge bookstore? If you go to Frederick, Maryland, ask them for the bookstore. They have. When I was there, you know, nobody buys those books. So now that I've just said that, everybody's going to be depleting my copies. But they have about six copies. You can also find it online. And uh, there are two versions of that. You ha- try to get the complete edition. Don't try to get the, sh- the short uh, paperback. You'll get more information in the complete division. Yes? Really quickly, I'd like to... I love you. Why did you come here, you pretty little thing, you? Well, I I heard you on NPR, and that's what actually drew me here. And I want to congratulate you on being so brave as a woman to write this book. Um, Also, um, quick question. I... um, I remember the end of the interview you were saying about his descendants and how they weren't even, they didn't even know who he was. Um, My father was, um, you know, big on Joe Gans, uh, you know, and so that, you know, I felt like when I, when I knew you were going to be here, I had to be here. But um, my question is, have they finally made um, some kind of contact with you in reference to this, this man, or are they still apathetic in reference to, to, to... Did I say they were apathetic? A bit, a bit. You did, a bit. It, it, I did? Well, you, you just said that they had no idea who, who this man was, and I believe it was well, a great-granddaughter. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so they're and here. Darian Gans, would you please come forward and let everybody look and see how closely you look to Joe Gans. Darian Gans, the last book signing I had in New York at the Hall of Fame, Darian Gans and his friend drove up there from uh, Camden, New Jersey, and uh, he brought his books for a signature, and he, and gosh, I saw him coming and I just about died. 
I mean, that was the end of it. I mean, that was the end of it. I wanted to measure his head, and, I, and, and didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? I said, oh, my gosh, if you're, you're looking at little Gans, you know, I'm sorry. And I know this is not very complimentary. I said, how tall are you, six foot, you know, whatever, and or five foot six and weigh 135. Don't try to go to welterweight and come down is what I told him. It'll ruin your health. And uh, so he just has those, those physical attributes. We're working on his genealogy as we speak because when I saw 15 Gans come in for the UB Blake thing, I went, oh, my gosh. They had 11 brothers and seven sisters, and uh, they're, they, they, you either look like a Murray or a Gans. And their oral stories, when I've listened and taken their oral stories, in my mind, I believe there's a connection. And I didn't have time before this event to come and search that out, but I think it's a blessing. All these things come together. We will get that research. We'll know exactly. And uh, uh, I, the first question I asked him is, "Are you willing to take a DNA test for me?" <laughs> now, what, what is the relationship again, sir? I'm sorry to, to jump. Great uncle. Okay. All right, um, last question. Last question. Kevin Grace. Kevin Grace is the founder and president of the Friends of Joe Gans. And I, uh, Kevin, what are you doing asking me a question when you can get me any time? No, because someone talked about relatives. So, I mean, you're talking about another blessing. When this gentleman asked me about the, had made mention about the gold field, I went out to my car to get the picture of the gold field and what it looks like nowadays. Oh, with the do Annex you have it building. with you? Yes, I do. But I got a call when I was going to the uh, car, and a young lady read the Baltimore Sun article, and she said, well, what is she talking about? There's no, uh, you know, they're saying there's no family. The relatives of the, uh, Joe had an illegitimate daughter. That's correct. Those folks called me. The last wife. Who's my guy that knows their, (laughs) yeah, please. Give me those facts. Do I want to So that, they got in touch with me, and I'll pass that information to you, so uh, they will make contact and she tried to go after the go- money for the gold field, but of course, at that time, you, as illegitimate at that time, you had no claims. So they wanted to let me know that, and they had a, a there was a picture of Joe, and there was a, some story, so some very interesting facts coming up. Thank you, Kevin, for adding that. The last property that Joe Gans owned that has not been destroyed is his boxing gym, and it's on Edding Street, and it's one one. One four Edding. It's just down from the Sharp Street Church. If you get a chance, go down there and look at it because you're looking at the last piece of history of Joe Gans in this city. And if you guys don't save that, I'm going to come back here and say the same thing I did at the Reginald Lewis. Shame on you, Baltimore! <laughs> okay, unfortunately, that has to be our last uh, question. But we do have books for sale, and uh, the author would be very happy to speak with you and speak with everyone. And thank you also very, very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.